Please take your Bibles, turn to the last book, Revelation chapter 13, and we will finish this chapter this week. We started last week with the first 10 verses. We'll focus on 11 through 18 this evening. You may remember last week we got introduced to the first beast from the sea, which was Satan's tool, Satan's human tool of oppression. Some call the Antichrist or a ruler or government. We learned of his great strength and power, but we learned in the end he will not affect the church because Christ rules over all, and Christ will keep his own. We'll get a taste of what the second beast is up to tonight. So chapter 13, verse 11, verse 11, all the way to 18. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work, In the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious triune God, we acknowledge that you are holy, majestic, and glorious. You reign from on high, and you are glorified in your work in creation, in salvation. Lord, we seek to give you praise because we know that we have no right to come before you apart from Christ. And we have been made new in your Son. So Lord, we pray as new creations, you would empower us to worship you as you deserve. Give us hearts that love your word. Hearts that are eager to repent, to trust you, and on guard against the lies of Satan and the beast as we will study tonight. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to be faithful to the end by empowering us to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have kind of a weird question. If you were to fall away from the faith, I know it's a weird thing to even talk about, right? Weird thing to even think about at this moment, but what do you think would be the thing that would lead you away? What do you think would be the greatest threat to your faith in this world? And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that any of us can lose our salvation. I just want to know simply if any of us, heaven forbid, 
walk away from the Lord, proving that our faith wasn't really genuine, what do you think it would be in your life? And would it be some grievous sin, kind of the ones that are known for this? Maybe substance abuse, pornography, lust, or greed, love of the world? I mean, you just go down the list of the Ten Commandments, right? Would it be a broken relationship? A marriage that caused bitterness towards the Lord? Or maybe even a broken relationship in the church that caused you to be bitter towards a leader in the church or towards God's people altogether? Maybe it would be suffering. We've been talking a lot about the beast. If suffering gets turned up in our culture and it becomes more costly to follow Jesus, will you endure to the end? Or maybe it'll just be some truth, some doctrine in your study that you just can't get past. I can't believe that's my God. I can't believe God would do that. Why would I follow a God that won't give me this, that won't fix this in my life, whatever that this might be? You know, it always amazes me what people will trade for the grace and kindness of God. I've been doing ministry for a while, and I've seen many, many people, unfortunately, walk away from the Lord. I can tell you, not one of them, not even one, ever considered they might be wrong. Ever even had doubts about their sin. None of them truly believed that they had a sin problem. None of them think their struggle will lead them away from the Lord. And you can ask any of the pastors. We are constantly pleading with people, repent, let go of this sin. It's not worth it. It's not worth trading eternal glory for this. Persevere in faith. Press into the church. And you know what people say over and over and over again? It's not that bad. It's not nearly as bad as you think. I have a problem. It's an issue, yeah, but it's, it's all under control. Really, it sounds so much like what we've been studying in Genesis, right? I will decide good and evil for myself. So deceived, so blinded by sin. I hope and pray that none of us ever want to see that happen in our own life. As your pastor, I pray often that I'm never in a meeting like that with any of you guys. So how do we, as believers, fight this kind of deception, this kind of spiritual blindness that could lead us to walk away from the Lord, that could lead us to apostasy? What can we do now to guard ourselves against it? Well, we learned a little bit last week. We really learned that we need two things. We need to know our enemy, know what he's up to, but most importantly, we need to know and remember our Lord. And we saw the first beast last week. We saw his tactics for deception and power and rule over God's people. And now we look at the second beast this week, which is similar but distinct in some pretty significant ways. So as we go through this passage, I want to draw your attention to three things about this second beast. First, the identity, the identity of this beast, verses 11 and 12. Then the influence, what is this beast trying to accomplish? And then last, what should we do? What's our response to this beast in verse 18. So let's look at verse 11 again as we look at the identity of this second beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb. Now I hope if you were here last week already, you noticed there's a contrast, right? Last week we had this beast that came from where? 
came right out of the sea, this place of turmoil and chaos and evil and wickedness. This beast comes from where? It comes from the earth. By contrast, a stable, steady place, right? It's not changing with every tide. You're not unsure what will come out of the earth. The earth seems far more stable. Last week, the first beast, if you look back in verse 1, the first beast had ten horns, seven heads. How many horns does this second beast have? Two horns. I mean, horns are symbols of power and authority and rule, but why does this beast have two horns? Well, look at the verse. It had two horns like a lamb. I tried this week to think of anything less intimidating than a lamb. I don't think there's anything that exists. Right? Terrifying lamb is an oxymoron. It just doesn't make sense. They're a pet. They're definitely not as dangerous as a lion or a beast or a leopard, as we saw last week in that beast. Plus, a lamb brings up imagery of a slain lamb, a savior, chapters 4 and 5. So this lamb with two horns seems to be passive and gentle, unthreatening, maybe even a savior. It almost seems wrong to call them a beast until you read the end of the verse. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. You remember the dragon is Satan. This beast has the mouth of Satan. It might look like a lamb, but it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mouth filled with lies and deception. That's who Satan is. Jesus tells us this in John 8, 44. He says, he, Satan, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that's why for the rest of the book of Revelation, this beast will be known as the false prophet, the liar. We'll see that in chapter 16, 19, and 20. And we'll see this beast use all kinds of lies to deceive. We'll see them use philosophy and political ideology. But the one place this beast loves to work is through religious deception. By twisting God's truth. Uh, we could say the first beast is like the perversion of the state, of government, of rule as God intends it. That means the second beast is a perversion of worship. True worship, perversion of Christianity. We could say the first beast is alive and well in places like China or the Middle East or places where we want to send our missionaries. The second beast is alive and well right here, isn't he? In cultures that have religious pluralism and tolerance and open to ideas. You know, the crazy thing about both of these beasts is they both want the exact same thing. They might look different. They both want this. Look at verse 12. It, the second beast, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, you may not remember it, but that's exactly what the first beast wanted. Look back up to verse 4. This is a description of the first beast. Verse 4 says, And they, that's the earth dwellers, the evil earth dwellers, worshipped the dragon. The earth worshipped Satan. Why? For he had given his authority to the beast, the first beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? See, both of these beasts want the same thing. They want Satan 
to get the honor and glory that God alone deserves. And they want to do that by pointing to the first beast, this false messiah, this antichrist. It's really interesting. This second beast wants to kind of fly under the radar. It wants to be that false prophet, the propagandist of the first beast, the accomplice of that first beast. All he wants to do is twist the truth and give glory to the first beast. And I hope some of you at least a little bit are thinking, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. It sounds messed up, but it sounds familiar because it should. This whole chapter, what we have is Satan creating an unholy trinity. If you noticed that last week and this week, but Satan did his work of creation from the sand of the seashore, and he basically was there and he drew a beast out of the sea and he drew a beast out of the earth. Well, you might remember that the Father in creation does what? Separates the waters. He brings life from what was formless and void. He creates Adam and Eve from where? The dust of the earth. Satan is making himself a counterfeit of God the Father. And then the first beast is a counterfeit of Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's why they call him often the Antichrist. He was given, he's like Satan incarnate because he's given his authority and power and rule of Satan. He had a wound, right? A mortal wound that was healed. He seemed to rise from the dead in some way, in some powerful way. He even receives worship to the ends of the earth. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's a counterfeit Jesus. So what's the second beast? Of course, he's a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Jesus describes the work of the Spirit in John 16. He says this, When the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And listen, he will glorify me, Jesus says. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit's job, his primary role is to point us to the truth, to speak the truth, and to point to Jesus. What does the second beast want to do? Twist the truth and point people away from Jesus to this false Messiah, to deceive. We have an unholy trinity here, which shouldn't surprise us, by the way. We should know that Satan is not content with basically just declaring God's truth to be false with blasphemy and lies and slandering God's great name. Satan wants to deceive. He makes a counterfeit of God to draw as many people as he can away from the true God. That's what Satan wants. Through this deception, he's using these two beasts. Now, what does that actually look like in the world? Let's look at verse 13. We've seen the identity of the beast. Now let's see what he's up to, what his influence is. And the first thing we'll see is that he wants to draw the world. His goal is to draw the world into idolatry and deception. That should come as no surprise, knowing Satan. Look at verse 13. It, the beast again, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of all the people. Who does that sound like? Fire from heaven. That's Elijah, isn't it? That's Elijah from 2 Kings chapter 1. Why would this beast want to copy the ministry of Elijah? Well, you might remember a few chapters ago, Revelation 11, we had the two witnesses. One of them, remember the two witnesses represented the church, one of them was Elijah. 
Well, why would Elijah represent the church? Because he had the kind of quintessential prophetic ministry attributed by signs and wonders. He preached God's word. That's what the church's role is. That's what this false Holy Spirit wants to do. Preach God's word in the sense twisting it. And we also know that in the New Testament, there's another Elijah, isn't there? Prophesied by Malachi for that another Elijah would come and prepare the way for the Lord. Well, who's that? John the Baptist. And so what does this beast want to do? Preach lies, do signs and wonders to try to lead people astray, and prepare the way for the false Messiah. That's what this beast wants to do. In verse 14, we see how he does it. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image, make an idol for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now this might sound like a weird passage, like a talking idol. What in the world is going on here? This is really describing the type of ministry this beast wants. Now in John's day, this was literal idolatry, imperial cult. We talked a lot about that during the letters in the seven churches. There were statues to Greek gods and temples all over the place, dedicated to Caesar and these Greek gods. And citizens were told to go to these places and to worship these false gods. Now, why would they do that? Well, sure, they they didn't want to be slain. There was fear involved. But mostly because verse 15. What does 15 say? It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Life. This beast performed signs and wonders to make these idols seem worthy of worship. To make these idols seem godlike. I don't know what that was, if it was fulfilled prophecy or miracles. There's even rumors in the first century of like talking statues or crying statues. You sometimes hear about that in the Catholic Church too, don't you? Those kinds of things happen. Now, are those fake? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, you see people in TBN getting exposed all the time for false miracles. But we need to remember that even in Moses' day, as Moses was performing signs and wonders, those magicians were kind of copying those signs, weren't they? Whether these were demonically or satanically enabled and supernatural or not, I really don't care because it doesn't matter. Fake or not, it accomplishes what the beast wants, which is to counterfeit the work of the Spirit, the work you see in the church, to point to a false god. That's what signs do, don't they? Signs point. And all the signs in the church are supposed to point to Jesus. This beast is taking the signs and wonders and pointing away from Jesus to idols, to this first beast. Now, what does that actually look like in our world? Where can we hear the voice of this beast? I don't think we have an imperial cult anymore. I haven't seen any temples to Biden or Trump or whatever. Although it's weird how we idolize these figures, especially when they lose, the chaos that ensues. So we don't have an imperial cult per se, but I think this beast still speaks to us in two places, in our culture and in false religion, in the church at times. Don't you see the lies of Satan twisting the truth in our culture and politics, education, Social media, entertainment, if I can just get them to laugh at things that are sinful rather than hate it, 
I've done my job. This beast wants us to make an idol out of money, out of family, out of entertainment, out of sex, out of influence, whatever it is. Look, the beast doesn't care what the idol is. The beast doesn't need to get you to worship the state, to worship the imperial cult. The beast just needs you to worship the things the state can provide, to worship the false gods that we see in this world. And usually, the one that tempts us the most is ourselves, getting us to worship ourselves. Now, lest we think the problem is just out there, we also see the beast at work in the church, in false religion, don't we? I mean, just look at the history of the church and all these spinoffs, all these cults from Christianity. The beast has been at work a long time. With the apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church and cults like Islam and Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, just these people that said, you know what, I like Jesus, but not the way the Bible says. I want to kind of tweak his character a little bit or, or change the doctrine just ever so much. And we get a false doctrine. We get lies, twisting God's truth. That's the work of this beast. Don't we see that at work even today? In liberal Christianity where they're wanting to redefine what it means to be a man or a woman or to be married? We see it in charismania, right? With basically making a God out of our passions, out of our excitement and his passion even for the Lord. Or in the word faith movement, which really turns God into a means to our end. This beast is alive and well, and don't think you're safe because you're not in a charismatic church or anything like this, this beast can be at work, yes, even in Reformed churches, confessional churches who care a lot about doctrine. In fact, that's often the temptation that comes. You know, your doctrine is really solid. You really need to protect it. It's okay if you don't evangelize, if you don't give of your time and your money. You don't really have to obey all the time. You just really need to guard the good deposit. Take out everybody who challenges Christianity on Facebook. That's your battle. Who cares if you go to church on Sunday? Actually, that can be the other temptation. You're strong enough. You don't need to go to church every single week. Family's important. Soccer games and sports and vacation and rest. Oh my gosh, if you're a parent, that's hard to come by. Lies of this beast. Make family your idol. Make theology your idol. And brothers and sisters, we can be the ones to influence each other in that way. To draw people away from God. That's the deception of this beast. And where does it lead? It leads to ownership, to control, to being taken captive, as Paul says in Colossians 2. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says this. Also it, the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, pretty much no one is unaffected in society from this. All of them to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Well, we're finally here. <laughs> finally to the mark of the beast. Some of you probably have been waiting months for what this is. What is the mark of the beast? What's going on with this? I have some bad news. Chad's going on sabbatical. He'll figure it out, come back and tell us in a few months. No, that's not the bad news. The bad news is this. It's not as glamorous or mysterious as the world tries to make it. Not even close. Right in the middle of a chapter on counterfeiting God's work, guess what the mark of the beast is? The counterfeit of God's work. 
a counterfeit of Deuteronomy 6, which really says God tells the people of God to take God's truth and what? Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts, on your house, and on your gates. God's telling the people to do what? My word needs to affect your actions, your hands. My word needs to affect your thoughts. It needs to affect every aspect of life, which is why it's on the doorposts and the gates. I own you. I own you. You're mine. Bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. I own you. You live for me. That's why even in the ancient world, slaves were often branded on the hand or the forehead. Even soldiers sometimes would get tattoos. So this is language of ownership. Now, really, we should know that then this is not a literal mark. We've got to toss all those crazy things out. It's not the vaccine. It's not credit card under the skin or barcodes or, or anything like that. It's not something you can get accidentally as part of some government conspiracy. No, this is a counterfeit of God's mark, which we've already seen in Revelation. If you remember back in chapter 7 and even in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit seals God's people, marks them with the name of God, where? On their forehead. And so what's Satan trying to do here? Counterfeit God's work. Mark his own people. Not because they have been fooled into it, but because they have now given themselves to Satan. They live like him. They think like him. They now have his stamp of approval, his spiritual mark. And because of that, those that do not take this mark, those that don't conform to the pattern of this world, as it says in Romans 12, are persecuted. They suffer financially, as it says in this verse. Or they're going to be targets for being slain. This beast is going to turn up the heat from the world on the church, which is what the first beast was. So what do we do? We've seen the identity, we've seen the influence of this beast. How do we respond? Look at verse 18. John keeps it short and simple here. This calls for wisdom. Discernment. John says we need that. Why? Because a counterfeit looks like the real thing, doesn't it? You see counterfeit money, you could be fooled because it looks so real. Satan's work, the beastly work that we see here, will look like the real thing. And this comes as a shock to us a lot of times. Look, we shouldn't be surprised if religions talk about love and honor and goodness and sacrifice, God-like things. We shouldn't be surprised when other religions talk about that. We shouldn't be surprised when heresy sounds attractive to us, sounds like the truth of God's word. We should even expect the world to be okay with Jesus in a sense, like I said before, on their terms when they can redefine him and reshape him. Look, I know this can be a shock, especially if you grew up in the church, so kids, listen to this. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslim, the people that don't go to church on Sunday, they're not all crazy pagan terrorists who want to sacrifice babies and do all kinds of evil stuff. When you meet them and talk to them and try to witness to them, you'll actually find out that a lot of them are pretty good. Some of them may be better parents than us maybe more disciplined than us in their own religion. But here's the thing. They trust in their goodness. And just like us, we, all of us, fall short of the glory of God. 
The things that make us distinct are not our holiness, our own holiness from ourselves. That does make us distinct in some way. But our union with Christ, which brings that holiness. So we need wisdom. We need discernment. We need to know our God and know his word. So we're not deceived by the lies of Satan. And we desperately need the encouragement in the rest of this verse. Look at the rest of verse 18. Let the one who has understanding, there's that wisdom he was asking for, calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Again, it's to shame that Christians go so crazy throughout history and try to identify the one person that this number represents. They're missing out on so much encouragement here. I bet none of you, or most of you, have never thought of 666 as an encouraging thing. Probably never, right? I have never thought of that until I studied this week. Because what's going on here is not as crazy and scary as it sounds. It's actually John's way of revealing how foolish and futile it is to give yourself to this beast. I mean, John actually tells us what it is right there. Look at the middle of the verse. For it says, for it is the number of a man. It's probably what the ESV says. I don't know if you have another translation if it's different. There's actually no article there. There's no the in front of man. It's just there's nothing there. Now, that's why they put the A there. But it's better translated generically. It should translate, really, it's the number of man. It's the number of humanity. But we should know by now that every number in Revelation is a symbol for something. Three and a half years, 42 months, 12 tribes, 144,000, all symbols. What's the one number that shows up the most? Seven. Seven churches. Seven seals. Seven trumpets. Seven bowls, seven, seven, seven. And what does seven represent? It's the number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. It's really God's number symbolizing wholeness because it calls us right back to the seven days of creation, God's perfect work in creation. So what's the six then? This is the unglamorous part. One short of seven. It's exciting now. Come up short. It's incomplete. It's less than perfect. It's the perfect number for fallen humanity, which is meant to be made in God's image, but always is falling short. So why 666 then? Why three sixes? Well, it's to emphasize the incompletion and the falling short of all of Satan's work in this unholy trinity. Satan tries to make himself into God the Father and tries to make this false work of creation to deceive the world, but he comes up short. Six. Then he sends the first beast in the image of Christ, acting like Christ, getting worship from the ends of the earth, but he comes up short. Six. And then this last beast, counterfeit of the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church, the false prophet, comes up short again. Six. A perfect, almost perfect counterfeit. Six, six, six. Falling short at every turn. Now, how do I know that that's what that means? Well, it's because of the next verse. I know we like our chapter separations. This is not meant to be a chapter separation at all. We're meant to read everything in chapter 13 in light of 14, verse 1. This shows us how the beasts come up short. Look at 14.1 with me. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, not on the sand of the sea, 
on God's hill stood the Lamb, the true Savior. And how do we know He's a true Savior? And with Him, 144,000. Remember, that number represents all the people of God. Do you see the gloriously good news? All of this beastly work, all of this deception, He didn't gain one saint. Not one of God's people was lost. All stand in glory with Jesus. Verse 1, who had his name, his mark, Jesus' mark, and his father's name written where? On their foreheads. That shows how they persevered. God kept them. God sealed them. He persevered them to the end. You see the encouragement here? John is saying, look, why would you settle for this false beast, this counterfeit God, when you could have this? The true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only creator of the universe, the one who is perfect and made this world perfect. Even though we brought sin into this world, he graciously sent his Son in the likeness of human flesh to live in our place and to die in our place, to take the wrath of God on himself to crush this beast for good, to free us from Satan's sin and death, and then to mark us with the Holy Spirit, His mark, His name, so that we persevere to the end. This is how it all ends. Revelation 14. In glory, and forgiveness, and peace with God, and righteousness. This is what you trade in when you follow this false beast. So the only question we can ask in light of this then is, who owns you? This passage shows us that each of us, each of us are marked by who owns us. I know we like to play the games and say, ah, we're just, we're neutral. We're kind of in this place of figuring out Christianity and testing out the world. No, this passage makes it clear. You are owned. You are marked by the beast or by God. How do you know? Well, if you're marked by God, you're marked because you're union with Christ and you don't conform to the pattern of this world. But if you live and think like the beast, you're already marked by the beast. And you have no hope. You have no hope in this world if you continue down that path. Your only hope is repentance. I know repentance can be costly, especially when you have this kind of beastly work in the world. It can cost you, but it's nothing. It is nothing to trade in for the glories of God. So trust and our Savior, trust in Jesus, who has given us freedom from this beast and this devil by his finished work. Let's pray. Father, help us to be wise, to be encouraged by your word that gives us a full picture of your work, and to rejoice and praise your great name by preaching your gospel to the ends of the earth so that others might stand with us at the end of time at Mount Zion praising your glorious name. God, thank you for your incredible grace and your incredible encouragement through this book as you give us a peek of what's to come. Lord, help us persevere. Help us to guard and help each other guard against the lies of Satan, sin, and this world. And help us to endure to the end so you might receive the glory that is due your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.